Bible study. This is week four of week 10, looking at the parables this summer. And I've absolutely loved going through the parables. Uh, when we can spend time with one chunk of scripture, right, where it's all a whole bunch of verses and we're just going to stay there. We're not going to pick a verse here and pick a verse there and kind of put them together for a meeting, but we're just going to stick in one chunk of scripture. I really love it because it helps us understand that scripture and it helps us grow in, I, I think, exponential ways because we, we understand that, that truth but then we understand it for the rest of our lives. Taking scripture here or there and applying it to something is, is, can be very helpful and beneficial to our lives. But that scripture in and of by itself, sometimes it's hard to find it again. It's hard to use it again because we, we kind of lose its place. But when we talk about uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus like we did last week, now all of a sudden your brain will be like, yeah, I remember what that's about. I remember those characters and I remember what that all means. And it helps you uh, hold on to the truths uh, of the Bible for the rest of our lives. So in your own reading uh, of the Bible, give space for larger portions of Scripture. Sometimes we'll get those little, those little hits of scriptures that uh, our Bible apps or, or whatever will hit us with, or if you read something like Our Daily Bread or something like that, one verse and a little note to go around it or something. That's great. It's, it can be very helpful, and sometimes those words are very timely. It's the exact thing we need to hear on the day. But I also encourage you to make room for larger reading uh, of God's scripture, larger portions at one time. And allow God to let it work in you and grow you to understand your understanding of him. And when you hit parts that you don't understand, just ask for help. Find somebody that may know a little bit more than you or come and talk to myself, Pastor Ingrid, or whoever uh, to maybe guide you in some parts of the scriptures that are a little bit more difficult to navigate. Because not one of us alone uh, can interpret and apply scripture perfectly. We have all of our own biases when we come to God's word that need to be addressed. And so we do this together as a community and work together at understanding God's word and then applying it to our lives. So that being said, let's uh, dive into our scripture for today. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 4, Jesus tells this parable. And it's a parable about a wedding feast. And this wedding feast is probably a little bit different uh, than most wedding receptions and feasts that you and I may have been to over the years. This one involves a king. Anybody here ever been to a royal wedding? TV doesn't count. And anybody? No, I didn't think so. You, oh, do you, have you been to a royal wedding? Well, there you go. One of us has been to a wedding like this in South Korea. There you go. So you have to travel far to be able to do that. So. But uh, so you can go to her for some reference as to what a royal wedding would be like. Everybody can go and see her afterwards for that. <laughs> you're lot. You think you think you're welcome there. All right. Um, so let's let's keep going here. Um, like I said, it involves a king and his son. It has some uh, dismissive invitees. There's cold-blooded murder in this one. It's a there's a city being destroyed and a motley crew of unexpected guests arriving at this wedding. And most surprising is the end of the story. After all the guests are in there, the king spots a man and he's not dressed up for the wedding. He doesn't have the clothes on that you would normally attend a wedding in and he gets kicked out. Actually, the, the king's words are much harsher than that. He says, 
bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man, that's a harsh response to a wedding crasher, isn't it? But this end adds some kick to it, to the parable that, that Jesus wants us to see and understand in this moment. And again, it's important when we read Scripture not to ignore the context in which the passage was written. It gives us a better understanding of what the Bible is trying to communicate. So for this one that we're reading, Jesus, or just before this, this parable happens, we see Jesus enter into Jerusalem. This is where, if you're familiar with some of the stories, maybe you recollect, he rides in Jerusalem on a baby donkey, right? Like a one-year-old donkey. That's what he rides into the city on. And people are going crazy. They got palm branches. They're waving them. They're laying their clothes down in front of them. They're hailing him as the king. He's, it's an amazing moment, right? He's riding into Jerusalem. It seems like their new king is about to, to arrive. That's, that's what happens, right? So he does this. But the good vibes are just about to end right after that moment. Because they do all this. He enters the city. There's a big parade. It's awesome. And as soon as he gets in, Matthew records this, that he went to the table. And what does he do? He overturns a whole bunch of tables and, and things like that inside the temple. He t- all these people that were selling things and exchanging money. Because if you wanted to give your offering at the church or at the temple at that time, you couldn't just use anything you had to use specific temple coins. And so you'd have to come and you'd have to change your money for ones that they would accept. And their rates of exchange weren't great or anything like that. And so he goes in and this is supposed to be a place where people could pray. And that's where they've set up all the tables. So you imagine a church prayer room and that's where they're making their money off of people wanting to come to church. And so a good thing to upset the tables, but it upsets more than just tables. It upsets a lot of people, right? Because this was supposed to be, again, like a place of prayer. And he's like, this, my father said this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. So he's creating quite a stir. And the religious people in the city, they're not happy about it at all. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because the next day, he goes back to that same temple where he had just created all that chaos. And the chief priests, the leaders of the faith system that Jesus is a part of, they're not happy to see Jesus there again. And they want to lay a trap for him to try to catch him so that they can arrest him and uh, do whatever they, they want to with him. And this trap is like a word trap. They want him to say something because he's preaching and he's saying who he is and this kingdom that he's announcing and everything like that. They want to catch him saying something that would be like blasphemy, that would be so outrageous for their faith system that they'd be allowed to arrest him and kill him for the things that he was saying. I'm trying to trap him. You think of like, um, like a, in a court case when the lawyers are there going back and forth and they got the witness on their stand and they're trying to get him to say that gotcha moment where they admit they do something really bad. That's what they're trying to get Jesus to do. They don't need a court. They just need him to say it in public so then they can charge him and uh, be on their way. Because they're like the judge and the lawyer all in one. They, just, they, can, they think they have the power to do all that. So this is the scenario that this is happening. This is the scenario where Jesus begins to share three parables with them. Knowing this, knowing what they're trying to do, he tells these parables, these stories. And he starts off with the parable of the two sons. 
and its focus is on Israel's leaders. Then the second story, the parable of the wicked farmers, it exposes the lack of responsibility the leaders have for the people. Then it leads us to the widest of the three, because it goes leaders, leaders and the responsibility for the people, and then it gets to the widest of all, the parable of the wedding feast that we're talking about today, where the focus goes from just being on the Pharisees, but to the Pharisees, religious leaders, and then the whole nation of Israel. And so it's vital that we understand that as we dive into the story, so we understand the context to what Jesus is talking about. This would have been a very tense moment as he's talking and sharing this right at the temple with all these people listening. People who are hungry to hear the gospel, but also those Pharisees and those religious leaders that were looking for a way to trap him and looking for a way to arrest him and end him. So that being said, let's read the scripture today. If you're following along, this is Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. And I'm pretty sure I'm taking this from the NIV version if you're if you're following along. And again, Jesus spoke to them in, uh, in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered. And everything is ready. Giant rib fest right there. That's what I'm hearing. Come, the wedding feast. Come to the wedding feast. But they played no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we take a moment, as we take some time to just walk through this parable, as this, this scripture, God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands and feet to do what your word calls us to do and be. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's walk through what this parable means so we can apply it properly to our lives. The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. The king in this story is God the Father, pretty straightforward there. Our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords. And the God the Father is preparing a wedding feast for his son, Jesus. And the wedding feast is what was called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, so when 
This is where it can be a little bit confusing when it comes to things. Why are we having a marriage supper for a lamb? That doesn't make sense, right? And this, this, this is going to be held in heaven at the end of this age. And as followers of Jesus, the Bible uses a few metaphors to give us an idea of how he views us. And one is as his bride. We are being married as the church. We are being married to Jesus. We're his bride. He's, he's proposed to us. He sent out his invitation for us to come and be his bride at this wedding. We're the church, his bride, and we're supposed to come to this wedding. That's, that's kind of what it is. Uh, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. So when we talk about the gospel and we see how Jesus covered the sins of the world, Jesus paid the price, the penalty of sin that the world should pay. And by world, I mean all of us, the people in the world. Uh, he was the sacrificial lamb. I'm sure you've heard, we've, met, we've heard those type of sayings, whether in faith comments or not. We hear that, oh, like, you know, you could be a business and, and uh, there's time for somebody to, you know, layoffs are coming. Right? And somebody has to be the sacrificial lamb, the one that gets laid off so the rest of the people can keep working at the company. Right? That kind of idea. That's, that's, the, that's what we're, listening, we're hearing here when he says the, the wedding feast for the, the lamb. Just so we understand what we're talking about there. We can see in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, John, who is one of Jesus' disciples later, would have a vision of what this looks like, this heavenly realm looks like. And he says this. He says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like the sound, the loud peal of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are true, the true words of God. We can see there John has a picture of what Jesus was saying in a parable form. He's now seeing a, a, a visual metaphor of what that's actually going to look like at the end of the age. So we, got the, we have this idea of there's a king and he's having a feast. We know who the king is. We know uh, who this lamb is that the feast is for. We know that the church is supposed to be the invited people. But who are the invited guests the ones that it starts off inviting. Those who were invited but who would not come. What Jesus is talking about there is the nation of Israel. God's chosen people who had failed to follow God's laws and now were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. God had sent many prophets. He had even sent his son to the Jews to call them to repentance. But they repeatedly rejected God's word. They persecuted his prophets and then would even kill his son, Jesus. The fact that they were invited, then called to come, then called another time, should not be overlooked. It isn't like this last minute invite to them that they are turning down 
because their schedule is already busy. They got it so late that they couldn't fit it into their schedule or something like that. This was something that they knew was coming. This was an event that's been forecasted and foretold ever since Adam and Eve fell and God made them a promise of redemption. God would restore all things between him and mankind. This is not a new thing for for them to understand. The Roman ruler, Pilate, in occupied Israel during that time of Jesus, just before he played his role in Jesus' death, he wanted to release Jesus, but the Jews insisted that he be crucified. But Pilate wanted to wash his hands, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. How did those Jewish leaders, the ones that were trying to trap Jesus just a few days earlier, how did they respond to that? They said, his blood be on us and on our children. Amazing how they didn't even interpret what Jesus was saying a few days earlier and how that would come back to haunt them. They actually say that they will own the fact that they were killing their Messiah their Savior. They didn't know he was, or they didn't believe he was their Messiah, but they wanted to own the fact that they were killing him. Jesus, a little later, after that parable, would give them a dire warning for those leaders. Matthew 23, 13, he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. The Pharisees and the rulers at that time were making it so hard to follow God, to hear what God would want for them. They were making it so hard. It's like they were on the outside of the kingdom of God, shutting the door saying, you're not qualified. You don't look right. You're not living up to our standard that would say you should get in there. They themselves weren't even in denying passage. They were trying to block others from getting into the kingdom of God. In the story, he mentions how when they killed the prophets, when they killed the messengers that God would send, that he got angry and he sent, he sent his army to destroy their city. This was something that happened repeatedly for Israel. Their city is Jerusalem. Previously, God had used in the Old Testament Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans to destroy Jerusalem in the days of Jeremiah because of Israel's idolatry and apostasy. The rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple that were there when Jesus was there were going to be destroyed again in A.D. 70 by the Romans shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. After the unworthy Jews rejected God's son and crucified their Messiah. It says a king sends out his soldiers and his armies to destroy a city in the middle of this feast. How is that possible? How do you have a wedding feast? How do you have a wedding reception and you're all there ready to go? In the middle of it, you go have a war and then come back. Again, we, we look at this and we realize this is an analogy. It is a metaphor of what the kingdom of heaven is like. We're not looking at the actual events of how it's playing out in real time. We're saying it's going to be like this. This is what it will be like, just to help us understand it better. These events will happen, but it's, it, 
the the timeline and how it looks is just is just uh, this is giving us a short synopsis of of how it all fits together. But then he says everyone is invited. The king says, man, the people that I've invited, the people that they've got the invitation, they got the, 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 you know, the set your reminder date, you know, thing. They got it all. They got everything. They should know. They've been asked multiple times to come and be prepared for this. They've rejected me. Who's going to come to this feast? Invite anybody. Invite everybody to this feast. He invites anyone and everyone to come. His servants obeyed, gathered people, as many as they could, both good, the bad, the ugly, whoever they could find, they brought in. Anyone. And after his resurrection, Jesus commanded his disciples to do this. He said, what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. You see that in Mark 16, 15. He told them to make disciples of all nations. We see that in Matthew 28, 19. And as he ascended to heaven, he said, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utmost parts of the world. We see that in Acts 1.8. Jesus was sending his servants to say, Go and invite people to this wedding feast. Paul, who was chosen by God, and who wrote a lot of the New Testament, he was a part of this as well. We read in Acts 13, 44 to 46, he says, On the Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God, a word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, saying this, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and you cannot consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So now, everyone is invited to the marriage supper of the land. Sinners are called to repentance, to salvation, and to eternal life by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But this parable, it talks about those clothes, right? We had that, that ending, it talks about how the king comes and sees a man not wearing the right clothes. What is that about? Why is he not wearing these clothes? Why is he speechless? Why does he have no excuse for why he's not dressed the way he's supposed to? While all are invited, only those who are clothed in righteousness of Christ by faith in Jesus will be allowed into heaven into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's the thing. People may try to get into heaven in other ways. All those other ways boil down to this. They want to get in on their own terms. They want to get in on their own terms. Sometimes we want to get in on our own terms. We look to God and say, do you really need to touch that area of my life? Do I really need to give that up to be truly following you and, and, and putting on that righteous garment that you have for me? Do I have to give that up? Can't I just keep this with me and bring it in with me? We want to do things on our own terms. We want to set what the terms for what faith looks like. We see that in the behavior of the Pharisees. And we can see that today in our culture. But only Jesus can cover our sins and make us clean. 
God will accept no excuses for rejecting his son's sacrifice, for rejecting his offer of grace. And anyone who tries will be cast into the outer darkness, weeping, speechless, like the man in the parable. And we're like, wow, it can seem harsh. But remember, they were all invited, and they were all given fine clothes to wear. This person chose not to wear this garment. He chose to try and come in on his own terms. And when he did so, when he's standing before the king, he's got no excuse. He's standing there in the presence of king, our God, the maker of heaven and earth, who's saying, why aren't you wearing the clothes that I gave you? I gave you righteousness that you could wear for this very moment. You or I would be just as speechless. There's no excuse that we could come up with in that moment that would be worth it as we stand before him. All of us, no matter our background, our church pedigree, intelligence or understanding of the Bible, we're all in the same like Isaiah 6, 46 says, all of us have become like someone who is unclean. All the good things that we do are like dirty rags to you, that you is God. All of us are like leaves that have dried up. Our sins sweep us away like the wind. And because our sins sweep us away, it should and does create in us a desire for something more that connection that only Jesus Christ fills. Paul would also write in Philippians 3.9, he says, all I want now is Christ. I want to belong to him. In Christ, I am right with God. But my being right doesn't come from following the law. It comes from God through faith. God uses my faith in Christ to make me right with him. Similarly to the parable Right before it, the faith that makes us right with God should produce in us character that reflects this new life that we have in Christ. The parable right before this one that we're reading, it mentions this in Matthew 21, 43. He says, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will do what? Produce its fruits. So what does that fruit look like? If it's taken away from the Pharisees and the religious rulers and those who want to come to faith on their own terms, those who don't want to accept what they need to do, full submission to Jesus Christ as he is and as he says, what what does that fruit look like, that fruit of the kingdom look like? It looks like this, like Galatians 5, to 26 says, the fruit of the Spirit, which is the Spirit of God in us, is this. It is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The law that we had just talked about, that's, you know, you have to do all these things. There's no law that will stop you from producing this fruit. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. That fruit. When we have the Holy Spirit in us, which comes upon us when we receive salvation, when we allow the Holy Spirit to continue to transform us and make us new so that the character of Christ comes alive in us, when we're reading God's Word and it's, it's becoming real to us and it's changing who we are, how we think, how we make our decisions, what it should do, it should produce that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the marks of the, the righteousness. That's the clothing that we wear when we step into that wedding feast. And you say, but it talked about those, the acts of righteousness. That it was the, the clothing was the acts of righteousness that God had for us to do. Exactly. The righteous act that God has for you to do, love your neighbor. Have patience with your neighbor. Have kindness towards your neighbor. Have goodness towards your neighbor. Have faithfulness and gentleness and self-control towards your neighbor. Who is your neighbor, you might ask. There's another parable about that one. That is the fruit of the Spirit. That is our clothing of righteousness when we live those things out. Not a righteous, not, not, not clothing of righteousness by rules, but of love. A balance of grace and truth that we see Jesus embody perfectly in his life on earth. So what does this parable hold for us today? First thing I'd say is this, a clear description of the invitation of God through the gospel. Anyone can come to the wedding feast. Everyone is invited to be with God. No one is exempt from this offer. Those Pharisees and priests they have an invitation. People today, every person on earth has an invitation to come to Christ, to be married to Christ, to come to this wedding feast and enjoy being with God forever. No one is exempt. But it comes through the gospel of Jesus. It comes through Jesus being who he is and us accepting that and applying that truth to our lives. So if you haven't responded to Jesus' invitation yet, here today, you are invited. You're invited. Number two, there's a clear warning not to warp the gospel into rules and customs that you make as an entrance fee into the kingdom of God. God's grace needs to change us. There's no rules. There's no certain clothes that you need to wear to walk into this place and to be a part of our family. There's no, nothing other than the fruit of the Spirit that we're looking for to see, look, you're wearing the right clothes to get into the party. Anything beyond that, you're making up rules that Jesus hasn't put in there. You know what it also means? It also means this, that we as servants have been called by God to go into the highways, into the byways, 
and invite as many people as we can. There's really only three positions that we can hold in this story. We're a Pharisee, we're a servant inviting people, or we're a lost guest that is yet to receive their invitation and come to the party. We find our place in the story no matter who we are. So I believe you're coming here today. You're a part of our church family here. You're one of those servants that God is calling to say, go, go into the highways, the byways, anywhere you possibly can go. Go and tell people there's an invitation for them that they need to respond to. Literally invite anyone and everyone to the party God is throwing. I mean, it's for mobile mission that we have here a tangible way that we're going right out into the literal streets to say, there's a God who loves you. There's a God who cares for you. I can offer you a little bit of food today, but I can offer you a feast forever. Whatever you have the capacity to do, come out with us on mobile mission. Bring and fill that box at the back with clothing and food every single week so we can prove it that our money is where our mouth is that our faith is where our mouth is when we say, God loves you. And I'm going to prove it by giving to you sacrificially. We can do the things that are needed to live this out. Number three, a reminder that the kingdom of heaven is a feast. Live like you know that. Here's the thing. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here now. When you know Jesus... It's a feast. It's a beautiful thing. I can wake up every day knowing my secure future is with God. There is nothing better than I could ever imagine than that. Is that I'm going to spend the rest of eternity with God and he's going to love me being there. If I don't if there's nothing better to wake up to every day, I don't know what it is. I love golfing, but if I could wake every, up every day and have the perfect tea time with the perfect weather and I could shoot the best score of my life every day again and again and again, I would give it all up, all up for knowing Jesus and my security in him. I could think of any earthly treasure and it would pale in comparison. I'd throw it away in a second to know Jesus, who he is, and to have this invitation. It's a party. We should live like it's a party. We don't need to be sourpuss Christians going around like we just ate a bunch of sour candy and have a sour look on our face. We have the best news ever. Even if we don't have the, the public, like, you know, whatever words to share it everywhere we go. We can't say it everywhere we go because our personalities are, you know, quieter. And we can give and serve in other ways. Even if we don't have that, we can still have that demeanor of, I can't believe Jesus loves me just the way I am. I don't have to do anything to look better for him because he gave me the clothes I need to get into the party. That's amazing. Let that soak and be your demeanor as a follower of Jesus. You got an invitation to the best party ever. And nobody can take it from you. That's pretty awesome. Now here's this. King David, okay? 
You may have, you, you've probably heard of him, you know, the guy who, who grabs a little sling and kills the, the, the kills Goliath, the giant. That guy becomes the king of Israel a little bit later in his life. Now, he lived roughly 500 years before Jesus came onto the scene. And obviously, like, that's 2,500 years from today, or roughly, right? And we still haven't seen that kingdom fully arrive yet. We're not at the, the, marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb yet. We're not at that, that point, right? We haven't reached that reception dinner quite yet. But he saw it in his eyes. When he closed his eyes and he knew who God was for him, he didn't know Jesus by name yet, but he knew there was a promised Messiah that he even called king. Even though he was king, he said that this future king was his king. When he closed his eyes and he looked into the future, he saw that moment. He wrote this in Psalm 16, 11 regarding it. He said, you make known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. He saw a day when he was going to be right with God. He had his invitation to the party. And when he closed his eyes, he could see it. He wasn't going to miss it for anything. And I hope that you won't either. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.